You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We pretty well come to the end of our mini-series on God's dealings with King Jeroboam. We're going to read together then 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 1 to 20, which is also the text for this morning's sermon. At that time, Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Go, disguise yourself so you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah the prophet is there, the one who told me I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahijah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahijah could not see. His sight was gone because of his age. But the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he is ill. And you are to give her such and such an answer. When she arrives, she will pretend to be someone else. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and made you a leader over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Because of this, I'm going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city. And the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Yes, even now. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their forefathers and scatter them beyond the river because they provoke the Lord to anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left and went to Tirzah. 
As soon as she stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him and all Israel mourned for him, as the Lord had said through his servant, the prophet Ahijah. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the king of Israel. He reigned for 22 years and then rested with his fathers. And Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it can be said that leadership is a most important, if not, one might even add, a most dangerous thing. It has all sorts of implications. It sets all kinds of directions. It can often result in either success or failure. And to illustrate, for example, think back to the 1860s, what would the United States of America be like today without the determined leadership of President Abraham Lincoln yesterday? I dare say that instead of North America being a continent composed of two countries, namely the United States and Canada, we might well be a continent made up of many, many countries. Had Lincoln not stood up for the Union, endless fragmentation would surely have been the result. Another illustration go back to France in the 17th century when King Louis XIV ruled the land. How different France would look today had he not revoked the Edict of Nantes. For that edict of 1685 stripped all the Protestants or Huguenots in France of their rights and freedoms and resulted in a mass exodus. And overnight, the country lost most of its craftsmen, was deprived of a good part of its middle class, and suffered economic decline. France's loss became North America's gain. And so you can see, and you can cite many other illustrations, that leadership has consequences. Sometimes they can be good, at other times they can be bad. And of course, what applies to countries applies to companies, to churches, to families, and to so many other social structures as well. Good leadership is a blessing. Bad leadership is more often nothing else than a curse. Stable leadership bears fruit. Wonky leadership leads to casualties. Honest leadership promotes. Crooked leadership destroys. One beloved, all of that is evident not just in life, but also in our text of this morning. We've been busy of late with the Lord God and his dealings with King Jeroboam of Israel. And now we've come to the last sad chapter devoted to that particular subject. And it's all a rather distressing, depressing kind of business. You could say it's all about leadership derailed, gone awry, hitting a brick wall. And so I preach to you this morning on the theme deception. But first of all, going to look at a desperate strategy. Secondly, at a brutal response, and finally, at a certain judgment. 
Well, beloved, we turn our attention this morning to the first part of 1 Kings 14. And we have to admit, first off, that we do not really know the exact time. We, we do not know precisely when this particular incident described in our text occurred. Later we are told that Jeroboam reigned for 22 years. So during some of those years, it took place. Most likely, but that's my guess, it was closer to the middle or beginning than it was to the end of those years. In any case, notice this particular chapter of Holy Writ opens with an illness. Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, turns ill, and his illness is serious. It even attracts the attention of King Jeroboam himself and calls for him to make a certain decision. Jeroboam decides to send his wife to Ahijah the prophet. Please note in our text we have Abijah and we have Ahijah. We have Abijah the son and we have Ahijah the prophet. And please note too, and you can come to your own conclusions on that, Jeroboam's wife remains nameless. We do not know who she is. So there's a fair bit here that we do not know that the Holy Spirit has chosen not to reveal to us, probably because it's not really all that important. But be that as it may, Jeroboam instructs his wife to visit the prophet. And you might ask, why her and and not him? Well, the answer is simple, and you can read about it in these previous chapters. Relations between them have become rather sour. For you may recall that Ahijah had informed Jeroboam originally that he was going to be king of Israel. And he had urged Jeroboam to rule in the style of King David. And finally, Ahijah had promised Jeroboam that if he ruled well and faithfully, the Lord would build and create for him a dynasty. But you know, all of that was back in chapter 11. And between chapter 11 and 14, a lot has taken place. The kingdom has been divided into two and ten. King Rehoboam received two tribes. Their scripture often says just one tribe because the one completely dominated the other. Jeroboam had received the other ten tribes. And of course, Ahijah knew that all of this was going to happen by the word of the Lord. But what he did not know was that Jeroboam would almost immediately begin to lead the nation of the ten tribes astray. In quick order, he sets up two cult centers, one in Bethel and one in Dan. He makes and he erects two golden calves, one in each place, and he appoints and anoints a special priesthood. He thus sets up his own pseudo-Judaic religion. And notice God is not pleased. And indeed, his displeasure came out rather dramatically in chapter 13. You remember in the sending of the man of God, 
In that chapter which deals with the withered hand of the king, the prophecy and the death of the man of God, the immobilized donkey and the paralyzed lion, and as well as the old prophet's confirmation, all of these things testify to the fact that God has greatly put out the Jeroboam. So the king knows by now that if he wants a good word from the Lord, he needs to be careful. And he also needs to be generous, apparently, hence the ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of oil or honey. And so he sends his wife instead, and note, for double measure, he has her disguise herself. Just in case the prophet sees who she is, recognizes her, and that this sours the prediction about the well-being and welfare of his son, he takes this extra step. You see, he does everything he can to squeeze some good news out of Ahijah, the prophet. But then also take note, for all of these precautions, our text suddenly indicates are rather useless. It tells us that Jeroboam need not have bothered. Ahijah cannot see anyway, it says in verse 4. Old age has robbed him of his sight. He can't see Jeroboam. He can't see Jeroboam's wife. He can't even see these gifts. All of those crafty maneuvers of the king are for nothing. But just because Ahijah can no longer see does not mean that God cannot see or hear. Verse 5 states, but the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he is ill, and you are to give her such and such an answer. When she arrives, she will pretend to be someone else. The ruse is up. The plot is exposed. God knows. Just think about it. God knows, and the king should have known as well. And indeed, in in many ways, this incident speaks volumes about the attitude of King Jeroboam. When things go well, he promotes his own homemade religion. When things go wrong, he turns to the Lord. You see, homemade religion is fine as long as you don't make any demands upon it, but the moment you do, it fails the test. And something else as well, homemade religion is not really interested in God at all. Jeroboam sends his wife to the prophet, not because he wants to mend fences with God, No, he wants to know something about God's insight into the future and the well-being of his son. You see, the word of God, in other words, is good for times of trouble, but not for daily living. In ordinary times, you do your own thing, 
But when hard times come or difficulties strike, you turn to God. That's what we call using and abusing the Almighty. It's all about exploiting Him. And you know, in a way, of course, that's nothing new. Our Lord Jesus Christ often felt used as well. On one occasion, he remarks, he says to the people, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus, in other words, sees himself as the ticket to a free meal. He's good for something. And that's how Jeroboam and many of the people approach God. He's good for something, but not for everything. It's good to go to him when you're sick and close to down and out. It may help you to call on him when you're poor. It may be handy to ring him up when you are weak. This is the God who is good for something, sometime syndrome. Jeroboam suffered from it, and let's face it, at times we do as well. When the weather is good, when life is sweet, when there are no clouds on the horizon, who needs God? Who needs God? Now, the answer is not long in coming, and it's a harsh answer, and it's a brutal, brutal rebuke. First notice the word of the Lord rebukes Jeroboam's wife. Before she even steps inside the door, she is greeted with the derisive words, Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Second, the word of the Lord exposes Jeroboam's sin. His sin is not just that he's playing tricks with God. No, his sin really is that he's turned his back on God's goodness and mercy. Who had raised him up, I ask you, and set him apart in the first place? Who had made him king and leader of Israel? Who had told him to imitate David as a great role model? Who had promised him a dynasty and a future? Every gift, every blessing, every promise, every promotion had come from God. And God alone. And what had been Jeroboam's reaction to God's goodness and generosity? Nothing but rebellion, disobedience, and insult. Over against God's words, I raised you up and I give you this kingdom stand The words, but you have not been like my servant David. 
You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods. You have provoked me to anger. Jeroboam's done more than simply ignore God's will. Turned a blind eye to it and gone his own way. No, he's insulted and attacked the Lord. You know, in verse 9, there's a Hebrew word used that's translated to provoke. It's actually a very strong and graphic word. It's the same word that's used to describe the actions of Penina. You remember Penina? She's the other wife of Elkanah, the fertile wife, over against Hannah, the barren wife. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Penina, Scripture says, did everything that she could to aggravate, to ridicule, to belittle, and to upset Hannah. She loved to make her cry. She pushed all the sore buttons in Hannah's life. She specialized in provoking her. Well, that's the word that's used here in our text of what Jeroboam does over against the Lord. He majors in rankling him. For unlike the other gods of the peoples, the Lord is not indifferent to who is worshipping and how he is being worshipped. The prevailing sentiment at that time was, worship as many gods as you like. And worship them as you jolly well please. It doesn't matter and they don't care. And no wonder. These people are blind and their gods are all dead. Dead deities, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't taste, they can't smell. Listen to the psalmist, they can't do anything. They're but the figment of human imagination, but not the Lord. Not the God of Israel. He lives, he sees, he hears, he acts. And indeed, he's entered into a sacred covenant and relationship with this people. He's bound himself to them, and they in turn have bound themselves to him. And time and time again in history, that covenant had been renewed. It's like being married and and saying your marriage vows, not just once in your married life, but time and time and time again. Yes, in a sense, Israel and God are married. And it's not a polygamous marriage either. The Lord doesn't have many wives. He only has one called this covenant people. And he doesn't expect his people to have many husbands either. They have only one and it is him. He's it. And nothing is allowed to come between God and his people, between God and the apple of his eye and the object of his great love. But Jeroboam has changed all of that. 
With his false gods, he's driven a wedge between the Lord God and his people. He's become the perverter of the covenant and the wrecker of the divine marriage relationship. And so God rebukes him. And indeed, God rebukes all those who drive wedges between him and his people. You can see the same thing in in the New Testament, for example, with our Lord Jesus Christ. And and what his attitude is towards all of those who, who wreck that relationship between God and his children. Why do you think Jesus pronounces all of those woes in Matthew 23? Because he sees how the Pharisees are perverting the true tie and link between God and people. His love for his people is an exclusive love and he expects ours to be the same. Our Savior died for you and gave you his love and he wants your love in return. Total love for total love, exclusive love for exclusive love. Is that what we render? Is that our aim? But then, beloved, if the word of the Lord rebukes Jeroboam's wife, exposes Jeroboam's sin, it also seals Jeroboam's future and brings judgment. You know, there are three parts to this judgment upon Jeroboam. In the verses 10 and 11, Ahijah predicts that God will not build Jeroboam's line into a dynasty. Instead, and and, you know, here the language gets really, in the original, gets kind of graphic and really earthy, and the translations all kind of sanitize it, but, but really... What happens is in verses 10 and 11 is that that God speaks so strongly to the people through Ahijah, he makes it very clear they've become a sanitation problem. That's why he says he's going to burn them up like dung. And the birds and the dogs will clean up what's left. And now one member of Jeroboam's family will remain. And thereafter, in the verses 12 and 13, Ahijah predicts what what God will do to the sick son of Jeroboam. He will die. He'll be mourned. And he'll be buried. In some ways, to this one son of Jeroboam, God shows a strange mercy. Sometimes dying is better than living. With him there is still some good, God says, to be found. And so he will promote him to glory. But he's the only one. And finally in the verses 14 to 16, Ahijah predicts what God will do in the future to the nation of Jeroboam. He will strike, uproot, and scatter them. He will give them up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and caused Israel to commit. 
And so you begin to see it, don't you, beloved, how bad leadership leads to bad results, how it has consequences. Idolatrous leadership has grave consequences. Jeroboam's wife trudges home, and no doubt every step back was torture. And no sooner did she arrive home and her son died and Israel mourned. Yes, there are consequences here. Consequences to take note of. Consequences also for us to take note of. You know, there is a sense in life in which you you reap what you sow. If you live dishonestly, You'll die dishonestly. If you don't love your children and embrace them in mercy and goodness and care, you will reap another reward. It'll be entirely negative. Our deeds have a way of following us. Also our deeds of leadership, especially. You'll notice as for Jeroboam and his deeds and his days, we know pretty well nothing about them. Verse 19 says, The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. And that becomes a bit of a refrain that you find throughout one kings and two kings as well. But what does, and I think we need to ask ourselves, what does this particular refrain about Jeroboam tell us? Well, it tells us not much. It says that if we want to know more about him, we have to turn to a different kind of book, and it's called The Annals of the Kings of Israel. Well, where's that book? Who knows? It hasn't survived. It hasn't managed to make it through the passage of time. So where does that leave us? And what is that saying to us? Well, it leaves us with only one source of information about King Jeroboam, and that's the Bible. But now notice, the the Bible is not interested in all of Jeroboam's economic, political, and military affairs. It's not interested even in his accomplishments or in his achievements. And he must have done something during those 22 years. You see, as far as the Bible is concerned, only one thing matters. And that is, what did the king do in the service of Almighty God? Was he faithful or unfaithful? Did he love the Lord or not? Did he do his will? Or did he ignore it or place fast and loose with it? That's what matters. Scripture says that's what counts. That's what gets remembered. And all the rest is irrelevant. And there's a lesson in that for us. When you die and they write your obituary, what matters not is how much money did you make, Or how much power did you exercise? Or how many people were at your funeral? 
No, what matters and gets remembered is, did you serve the Lord or not? Were you a true, committed follower of Jesus Christ, yes or no? Did you walk in the ways of the Lord? All the rest, sorry to say, but all the rest is window dressing. And you know, when it comes to leaders, the real question is, were you a true servant leader? Were you a good leader in your, in your home, in your marriage, in your family, in your church, in your company, in your country? Yes or no? Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.